Well, the other two guys on staff have said it already today, so I get to say it now. Happy New Year to you guys. Um, it's a joy to, uh, to worship God um, this day with you. We start out 2017, hopefully on a really good note. Um, let me pray, and we'll get into God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, it's a joy to come into your presence, to be with your people. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we have seen in visible and intangible ways over the past year the ways that you have been gracious to us and the way that you have loved us, the way that you have cared for us, the way that you have shown us yourself. And Lord, we look forward to seeing your mercy continue. God, you are a covenant and faithful God to us. And we continue to see your grace poured out in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we get to your word this morning, I pray for my own heart pray for my words and for my soul as I preach. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would be heavy in this place and would give understanding and clarity to your words from Scripture. I pray that, your, um, that Jesus Christ would be glorified. Lord, I pray that we would worship God the Father for who He is. And Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would give us understanding. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ who has made peace with God possible for us. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and actually today we're going to finish our Songs of Christmas series. So we're going to finish with the last song in Luke, and this is in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 33. So if you'll turn there with me, if you have a Bible, otherwise you can look on the screens and it'll be up there. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Simeon's song really comes at a great time for us. Um, and this text comes for us at a great time. After Christmas, the hubbub of Christmas has ceased. And for the time of Scripture, it comes at a very similar time. Eight days after the baby Jesus was born, he would have been brought to the temple for circumcision. And 40 days later, he would have been brought to the temple for Mary and for Jesus' purification after birth. So we really come to a post-Christmas time, which many of us probably are feeling very much the post-Christmas time in our own lives, where the disaster of Christmas has ceased around us, and now it's just a matter of clearing out last year's items to make room for this year's items, 
or to make that yet another trip to the dump or whatever the case might be. Or finally, maybe family has gotten out of your house and you're like, maybe we can now get a little bit of rest so that we can be ready to start the new year on a good note. Maybe that's not the case yet and you're still just hoping and praying that that's going to happen sometime. But realistically, the hubbub around Jerusalem, the hubbub around Bethlehem has probably all but died down. Jesus wasn't born to, in pomp and circumstance, in a royal palace or anything like that. We know those stories. We've heard them our whole lives. Jesus was born in a small town to a lowly couple, and the miraculous things that were surrounding his birth were only seen by not the masses, but by a few. So probably the shepherds, after having gone out into the town and proclaimed what they had seen and what had been told them by this angel, They've gone back to herding sheep. Mary and Joseph have started to adjust to life with a newborn baby. Remember, Mary is one of these people treasuring things up in her heart. She's remembering. She's pondering things. Verse 33 of our text says, And Joseph and Mary marveled. They wondered at what had been told to them. They're thinking through deeply what is going on surrounding the birth of our son, who is our Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There's been other rumors that circulated around. Zachariah, he was mute for a while and then had a kid and then broke with tradition and called the kid the wrong name. But then miracle of miracles, Zachariah can speak again. Elizabeth, she was old. She had a child. This is incredible. This is marvelous. God's glory, the angels have come and said, God's glory has come to dwell with you. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men because God has sent his glory to dwell with you and you've seen it in Jesus. We fast forward this morning to what I would like to think is the house of an old man. And he's one of my favorite characters in the Christmas story. And the old man is Simeon. And there's not much that is all known about Simeon. He only shows up this place in scripture. This is the only gospel account that he shows up in. And he has 11 verses. Actually, he has like 13 or something like that. But he doesn't have much screen time at all in the play. He's a little bitty part, but this man has a lot to show us. He's a devout worshiper of the Savior. He's probably been a man who spent all of his life combing over the pages of the Old Testament and saying, what do these pages say about the coming Messiah? But in a miraculous turn, it says that the Holy Spirit has come on Simeon And that has revealed to him that he won't see death before he sees the anointed one of God. Before he sees the fulfillment of the prophecy. Before he sees what their nation, what their people, what he himself has been waiting for. And that's to see God's salvation come. And so moved by the spirit, the text says Simeon gets up and he goes in the spirit into the temple just as Mary and Joseph come in. It says, and he sees the child and he takes him in his arms, and he breaks into the song of worship and says, now you're letting your servant depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the sight of all nations. He says, what does this salvation do? Only in Luke's account does this beautiful passage occur, but I love it, and I want to take some time for us to dig into it this morning. There's one old guy, Simeon in Jerusalem, waiting for God's salvation, I have four really simple points for your outlines this morning. If you want to get them up front, I'm going to give them to you. Otherwise, track with me. 
and uh, you can get them throughout. First of all, we're going to look at the promises of God. We're going to look at the purpose of God. We're going to look at the people that God uses. And finally, we're going to get to looking at the peace of God. So let's start with the purpose of God. What is God's purpose? What is God's purpose in all of, in all of history and all of Scripture? It's clearly obvious from this text that Simeon is a person that possesses a very tenacious faith. Um, he trusts the Lord, he receives a promise, and he trusts that promise. And as he trusts that promise, he's unwavering in it. He's confident in the simplicity of the promise that God has made to him. You're going to see the Lord's Christ. You're going to see the one that's fitted and equipped to save. Um, if you look at the whole storyline and the whole arc of Scripture, what do you see? You see creation. And we see right after creation, we see the fall. And in the fall, God makes even a promise in the fall where he says, in you, or he says, sorry, to the woman, he says, in your seed, there's going to be a seed that's raised up. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to bring redemption. And so Eve, what happens in the story of scripture? We get to Genesis chapter five, Cain rises up, he kills Abel, right? And then what does God do? God provides a son, and Adam and Eve name that son Seth. And Eve says, God has given me a son. And even in that asking, even in that statement of naming her son Seth, she's looking forward to saying, is this the one that God has promised that's going to bring peace, that's going to bring redemption, that's going to bring consolation to our souls? She's looking for it. God has given me another son. The longing seems to get more and more difficult in the pages of Scripture because if we fast forward a little bit in the storyline of Scripture, we get to Abraham, we get to Sarai, and God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a son. There's another promise that God has made to his people. He says, I'm going to give a son. And so Sarah, as she's sitting in her tent doing her crocheting or her knitting or her old lady task, she's sitting in this um, tent and she hears the promise and she laughs because what does she say? Is it true that God could give me a son in my old age? She's like, I'm past the point of kids. That ship sailed long ago. It can't happen to me. But what does the faithful God do? That provides a son. We keep going on in the storyline of Scripture, and God continues to make promises to his people. He says, these are the ways in which I'm going to relate to you. And God continues to make these promises to his people. And it seems like God is slow to keep his promises because they last for a really long time. We eventually get to this intertestamental period that Jones talked about three weeks ago where for 400 years, God hasn't spoken to his people. And my kids, if I don't speak to them every six to eight seconds, they begin to wonder, hey, is everything okay with dad? Are we good with dad? Is he still gonna come through? Or if something is slow, to be realized. It takes them a while to trust that. And so God's people enter this period where God hasn't spoken to them. And they're saying, is God still faithful? Is he still going to keep his promises to his people? They've been conquered by four different people groups. They've been exiled to all parts of the known world. And they're saying, is God going to still keep his promise? And Simeon arrives on the scene as a small figure 
that says, no, I believe that God is faithful to keep his promise. His promise is through scripture and the promise that he made through his spirit to me. As I thought through this passage deeply and as I tried to apply it to my own life, I noticed how this message would probably look different for me. Because I'm in a very different place in life than we speculate that Simeon was. I'm still at the beginning of my life, I hope. I hope that my life is not about to close the book on on Ben Clark in 2017. That would be really great for me not to die this year. But Simeon's probably sitting here thinking, how long will the Lord tarry in his promise to me? Because I'm getting advanced in years, but yet I know and I trust this faithful God. Because of the clarity, though, of the message, it says the Spirit reveals to Simeon that he wouldn't see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. That's a pretty clear and a pretty straightforward message. I love straightforward. I love clear messages. They really connect well with my male brain. If Audrey says, Ben, I need you to do this, that's a great message for me because it's clearly laid out. This is the expectation. There's not a lot of discussion around it. It's clear. It's straightforward. It's to the point. I like that. I think Simeon liked that. God gives Simeon a clear directive. You're going to, here's the promise for you. You're going to see the Lord's Christ. Um, But he says what it is, not just you're going to see the Messiah, but you're going to see the consolation of Israel. It's not just a promise for Simeon. It's a promise for the nation of Israel. You're going to see Israel's consolation. The Greek word that shows up in the text here is perikolason. And perikolason is the exact same word that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God and Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, that same word, and good hope through grace, may he comfort perikolason, your heart, and establish them in every good work. What Simeon is waiting for, this consolation of Israel, is a deep comfort. Um, Tim Keller explains this comfort word as, um, let me find where I wrote that down here. Completely lost my point. Yeah. Um, he, He defines it really well. Here it is. Consolation means encouragement in the light of sadness. Encouragement in the light of sadness is what Simeon was looking for. He was looking for someone who would bring to him and to the nation of Israel encouragement in their sorrow. So we look today and we think today, what is it that provides us peace? If Simeon is waiting for someone to bring peace to him, comfort in the midst of sorrow, what are, we, what is, what are the things that we are looking for to bring us peace Is it when all the dishes are clean and the toys are put up and the kids are safely in bed? That kind of is a peaceful thing. It's definitely peace. But for parents, we know that that peace all too often is quickly shattered by the bad dream or the kid who gets hungry right before he falls asleep or something else, any number of things that show up. It's a great kind of peace, but it's something that's temporary. It's something that quickly crumbles I used to think that having well-behaved children at restaurants was something that would provide for me peace. And that's kind of true. They provide peace for a little while, but 
It's this peace that creates this inner stress ball in me that wonders, when's the peace going to go away? When's it going to get shattered? And when are my kids going to show their true colors in the middle of the restaurant? Sometimes it happens. Maybe peace for a college student, for a high school student, looks like all the homework's done, all the projects are turned in, and I think my grades are in a good spot for right now. Maybe that feels like peace, and that's the thing that you're waiting for. You think, hey, this gospel, what it provides for me is peace, and I can get peace just about the same way through other means. These other means are temporary because what does it do, students? Homework just keeps on coming, doesn't it? You go back to school on Monday, and then, wait, Tuesday, there's more homework to have done. There's always another project to get done. There's always something else on our agenda. There's always another deadline that has to be met. Peace cannot come through our external circumstances because they all too quickly change. Christians, for us, where do we find peace? We find peace because our God is a promise-keeping God. Just like he said to Simeon, you will not die until you see my consolation. Simeon trusted the promise, and God came through and delivered his promise to Simeon. Simeon found peace as he trusted the promises of God. Those promises that Scripture showed him, that Scripture shows us that find their yes in Christ Jesus, as 2 Corinthians talks about. But Simeon doesn't stop at just the promise of God. He continues to sing, and this is what he sings. He sings declaring the purpose of God through this child. God's purpose in the incarnation is clearly manifested through his song where he says, this child is salvation for your people. He is light for revelation to the Gentiles, and he's glory for your people, Israel. That's who God is. That, who, that is who Jesus is that Simeon is seeing and declaring to those that were gathered around the temple and who heard this, and to his mom and his dad. It's clear that the one being described is Jesus Christ, the Christ, the one who would save the Messiah, the long-awaited promised king, the one who came from God. He says, my eyes, my old man eyes, have looked at and have beheld your salvation. And it's beautiful. He says, my eyes have seen the one that God the Father sent to save, to fulfill all of the promises that the prophets through God made to our people. That's who this Jesus does. That's who this Jesus is. He's the one who's going to fulfill those promises He writes this beautiful song and he says, this is our God. He is the one that brings salvation to his people. The purpose of Jesus Christ himself was a purpose of saving. The purpose that God had in sending Jesus was to accomplish salvation. In recognizing the Son of God, Simeon proclaimed to those around him and to all of history after who would read his words that this baby from God 
was the Messiah, the one suited to save, sent to bring peace on earth, to bring the consolation, to bring the comfort in the midst of sorrow to God's people, and for Simeon to bring him peace, because he says, now I can depart in peace, because I have seen God's Savior right here. Simeon knew the promise of God. It was that he would see the Messiah. We can trust the promise and we can find comfort there, but we also need to continue to walk down the path of worship that Simeon walks down, and we need to look with Simeon in awe at the Savior that Jesus, that God sent, this Jesus, heaven sent to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That is to open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 9, 2 One of those prophecies that pointed to this Messiah that Simeon's holding in his arm says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Through Christ Jesus, the lost see their means of salvation. Through Jesus Christ, they see how is it that mankind finds peace with God opening their eyes to see light, which is Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, God's people, as we look at Christ Jesus in the pages of Scripture, what do we see? We see our God. We see our Messiah and our Savior. And we see our glory. I think that's what Simeon does as he looks at this child. He looks down and he says, this is the one who receives glory. Not me. Not an old man. Not even a devout and a righteous man, but this Savior that I see in my arms is the one who gets my glory. I ask the same question again. What is it that gives us peace this morning? Do we find our ultimate peace in a purpose-filled life? If we say, hey, I know where I'm going and I know the steps I'm going to take to get there. Is that the thing that provides for us peace this morning? Do we find peace in the goals that we make? Those purposes that we have. It says, man, if I could just lose five pounds, ten pounds this year, I could find peace with myself this year. The New Year's resolution, is that the thing that we are looking for to achieve for us peace? Or are we looking for peace, for consolation in the same place that Simeon did? That is that we look at Jesus the one who is destined to save us, who is sent from God for the purpose of salvation for you and I, is that where we find our ultimate sense of peace and looking to him, one who could save and who only can save you and I. Jesus Christ had a purpose for which God sent him to earth and that was for our salvation. How does my life connect to that purpose? How do I play a part and this story of God bringing redemption to his earth and bringing peace to his people and bringing light for revelation to those who are far from him, for glory to his people. How do I connect with that? We looked at the promise of God. We looked at the purpose of God. Let's look today. Let's look right now at the people that God uses. Hidden in plain sight in this story are the people that God uses. There's only one main character in the story, and that's Jesus. That's the person that this whole account points to. 
It points to Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph are seemingly small parts in light of Christ Jesus, the one who is sent to save. Simeon is a small part compared to the one that is sent to save. But all of these God uses in part of his purpose and his plan to bring redemption to his people. They're just these incidental characters. Mary, we looked at her, a small girl in Nazareth who God chooses to use for his eternal purposes. We looked at Zechariah, a priest. And what does God do? God chooses to use Zechariah to give birth to a son who is going to be the forerunner to prepare the way for the Son of God. God uses these small people and these small roles in bringing salvation and bringing his light of revelation to other people. One of my favorite Christmas books, I'm not sure if I've ever used this as an illustration here, uh, but I know I've done it for the youth ministry. Uh, In fact, one year at our Christmas party, I sat down and I read this whole book front to back for our students. And my favorite Christmas story is this little bitty volume called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Best Christmas Pageant Ever is a phenomenal piece of literature uh, that you should buy immediately and just read right now because it's so good. It's the heartwarming tale of a small town Christmas play that's destined to be the best one ever until the family of hooligans comes in and wrecks everything, okay? So imagine you're in a small town, that's where this book is set, and there's the horrible family, the Herdmans. And the Herdmans arrive on the scene, and they are described in the most offensive language possible because the Herdmans, they lie and cheat and steal and smoke, and they take candy from little kids. And the Herdmans, just phenomenal, phenomenal model citizens, and their mom left them, and they spend all day long at their house trying to smush the cat with the garage door. So the Herdmans, great, great people. So the narrator of the story... Her brother makes a huge faux pas. He goes to the Herdmans and he tells them, guess what? I'm going to be in the Christmas play at my church. And guess what else? We have candy every day at our church play rehearsals. So guess what happens on day one? The Herdmans show up for free candy. So they show up on the scene and they blackmail everybody else who is thinking of trying out for a role into saying, don't try out for a role, stay home. And guess what happens? They land all the main roles. Imogene, the oldest herdman, is Mary. Her brother Ralph is Joseph. They talk about stealing a baby from the supermarket to be the baby Jesus. Their little brother, who is the meanest of all herdmans, Gladys, ends up being the angel who brings tidings of great joy to God's people. And then interspersed throughout are other brothers and sisters playing multiple roles. There's three brothers who play the role of the three kings. And what they decide is that this little baby doesn't deserve any gift from me, so they steal the props because they're like, they're painted gold. We want them. They're shiny. But in the middle of this book, and I might just wreck it for you, and I'm sorry about that, It gets to the end where they're putting on this Christmas play, and everybody from town turns out to see how in the world are the Herdmans going to mess up the greatest story in the world? How are they going to destroy the Christmas story and make it about something different? And the narrator says, at the point Mary and Joseph come in, and 
Imogene's holding the baby Jesus by the neck and looking disheveled, and she's got tears streaming down her face. And she doesn't have any speaking part, but she lays the baby in the manger, and the wise men come, and they took the ham that they had stolen from the grocery store, and they brought that ham, and they laid it at the manger because it was their biggest treasure. And it says that the girl who's narrating the story, she looks over at her mom who's directing the play, and her mom has tears streaming down her face because she said, in the midst of this story of Christmas, God used the most unremarkable and terrible characters ever to communicate what God was doing. God didn't just come to bring salvation to the great and the pulled together. God came to bring salvation to the humble and the lowly, the destitute and the broken, the sad, the poor, but also the rich and the pulled together and the intelligent. But he comes to make his salvation known through his son, Jesus Christ, and somehow in God's perfect plan, he chooses to use little people like you and like I are small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things, and oftentimes we see our own brokenness really, really clearly. I love the best Christmas pageant ever because the brokenness of the herdmen's is really, really evident. But I confess that every time I get to the, the end where the little mean herdman stands up and points at the shepherds and screams at them, hey, unto you is born a Savior. I kind of lose it because I'm like, man, my delivery kind of stinks at times. I'm definitely not the model example in every moment of my life of what does it look like to demonstrate and to show God's salvation that's come through Jesus to those people that are around me. But yet God still chooses to use me. I think it's beautiful the way that God uses Simeon, an old man past his prime, who's trusting the Lord that I'm not going to die until I've seen God's salvation. And then that man becomes one of the first men to ever herald, this is who this Jesus is. He's your salvation, Israel. He's light for you lost people. That's who Jesus is. You might be here this morning as an exhausted mom of preschool kids. That's the place that I see Audrea. We're getting ready to move. She's pregnant with baby number four. There's a whole lot going on in life. And you think, how is Jesus glorified through me? My kids just would rather fight over the Legos or complain about the snacks they're being provided. Life is subpar right now. Maybe that's where you're coming from this morning. Maybe you're a young man, young husband, who has lots of hopes and dreams for the future, and you can't quite figure out what is proclaiming God's salvation in my context look like? Because if I rock the boat too much, I might get passed over for a promotion at work. I may lose my job if I begin to get too crazy about proclaiming who God is, what he has done for me, and what his salvation looks like for those in my life. Maybe you're here This is a place that's difficult for me to apply. Maybe you're here this morning as an older person. who You've been, um, you've devoted your whole life to your family. You've devoted your entire life to your church. 
but it seems like there's places where you've gotten passed by, where all of a sudden you've outlived your usefulness. And I'll tell you this, I confess this. It's easy for me as a youth guy to look past the older folks in this church because a lot of times you don't have the staying power that it takes for a week in the mountains with sixth graders. You don't want to do an all-nighter. I mean, I'm only 30, and I don't want to do all-nighters anymore. I tell students that all the time. Like, we're not going to do them. You hate them, and I hate them. But maybe you're sitting here as an older person. You're like, man, what is, how is God still using me to proclaim his salvation, to proclaim who he is and what he has done? And I want to tell you just a real short illustration. Several months ago, I did a series with the youth on the church and the importance of the church for students. I think students, oftentimes they lose the value of the church because they're like, I have the youth group. I have Sunday school. I have this, that, and the other. I have all these Bible studies I'm part of. Why is the church important for me? It's like, well, this is what God set up. This is God's body. And so I decided one night to do a panel discussion with them, and I got a number of, um, of older folks from the church. But I built my whole study around the fact that I wanted David Hildebrandt to be there. Because David has been at King's Chapel for as long as I can remember. And David is 74. Is that right now? 74 now. He just retired. And his life is so full. So I had to plan this panel discussion like three and a half weeks out. I'm like, hey, he's a retired guy. He probably can do it like tomorrow. And so I talk, contacted him and he's like, well, these are the things that I have on. Here's the first Wednesday that I can do it. And so David came and I had a couple of other folks and I said, all right, I would like for you to share your wisdom on the church. What does the church mean to you? And David made this statement, and he said to me, and he said to our students, he said, when I was a kid, I grew up next to the church. He's like, I was always around the church. He said, we played around the church. We were constantly, our lives revolved around that church. He said, but it was a place where I would just go and do churchy things. But he said, as I've gotten older, and I, I think I'm saying this right, he said, the church, God's people, have become the fenced pasture that surrounds my life and where I stay and where I live and where I love to be. And I was like, man, that kind of proclamation of who God is and what his salvation looks like and where it's proclaimed through this church, through other churches, that's something that only comes with age and maturity, with someone who has said, this is my Jesus, and I know him, and I walk with him, and I love him, and I love proclaiming what he's about. That's why David is the first face that most of you probably see when you get here on Sunday mornings, and why he's half the time the last person to leave, and why he volunteers everywhere that King's Chapel is connected with. It's because he says, I have found peace with God, and I get to share that, and I get to be devoted to God's work even in my old age. How does knowing who God is give us peace? It gives us peace because we know that we get to be part of the work that God is doing through his kingdom. The last thing I want to talk about this morning is just looking at the, just the central point. What is the peace of God? Simeon knew he had found peace with God because he had seen the Lord's salvation. He saw Jesus, and he worshiped the Savior who had come to redeem him and to bring redemption to all of God's people. God made his salvation known through Jesus Christ. Even in his devotion, Simeon knew, I'm not going to find salvation 
through my devotion. I'm not going to find it through temple worship. I'm not going to find it through knowing the Old Testament better. I'm not going to find it through any other means except through the means that God has provided, through a Savior that God himself has promised and I trust will send. There is only one way for you and I, brothers and sisters, to find peace, to find real, to find lasting peace. Sure, we can have positive self-talk. Sure, we can have our, our financial lives in order. We can have our homes in some semblance of order. But there is only one way that you and I can find lasting peace, and that's not through academia, and it's not through study, and it's not through any other means except through Jesus Christ. Simeon completely got it right as he looked at the child Jesus and worshiped him, and he says, this is the consolation of Israel. There's no other way that you and I can find comfort and consolation in the midst of sorrow except for through Jesus Christ. That's the kind of peace that can let us depart in peace. That's the kind of peace that can let us depart from the mom competition of saying, am I the best mom to my kid that I can be? It can let us step off the corporate rat race and say, if I get passed over for a promotion, it's okay because I have found peace with God. It can give us peace when children are rebellious. It can give peace when our job foundations seem to be crumbling. It can give peace when we're just entering into marriage and we're saying, I don't know how in the world I'm supposed to be a godly husband to my wife and lead a family well. I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. But I do know that I can have peace through Jesus Christ. Salvation through Jesus Christ means that we know how the story ends. In the words of Horatio Spafford when he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul, which came in the midst of a great personal sorrow and great personal struggle. He says, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, It is well. It is well with my soul. He knew that the only way for his soul to find peace was through Jesus Christ. Several years ago, we had a season of life that was plagued with a lot of fear with our kids. And in that fear, Audrey and I did the only thing we really knew how to do. And we said, let's teach them Christ's words. Let's bring scripture to bear on the fear that they're experiencing. So one of our favorite verses is we taught them um, Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. And we adapted it for two and three-year-old kids so that they can memorize it. And so every night when our kids go to bed, we stand there next to their bed and we say, All right, what does scripture say, kids? And Calvin and Micah and Hosanna... <laughs> They repeat with me and they say, in peace, I will lie down and sleep, for my God will keep me safe. And last night, as Calvin was getting ready for bed, um, he said, Audrey asked him a question, and Calvin answered the question really quickly over his shoulder as he ran to his bed, where I was getting the rest of the kids ready for bed. And he said, Mom, I have to get to bed, because if I don't, I'll miss saying in peace with Dad. Somehow, my kids connect in a different way to God's peace than I oftentimes do. I'm a wreck. I'm an emotional basket case at plenty of times. When we started down the process of buying this house, there were those times where it's just like I'm laying in my bed, looking at the ceiling because I'm like, 
this is a huge decision. How can I do this? Am I going to really go through with it? That's a whole lot of money. This is going to affect the next 30 years of my life. Do I really want to do this? And my kids, meanwhile, next room over, are like snoozing away in peace because they remember and they somehow connect to the fact that the reason they have peace is because of Christ Jesus, what Christ Jesus has done for them. Jesus Christ was the one who was sent by God, who was anointed to save. He was the one sent to bring us peace. But the only way for peace to come to you and I is for Jesus to experience the complete absence of peace. This morning we're going to come to communion. We're going to come to celebrate what it cost for you and I to have peace. That Christ poured out his blood that his body was broken so that you and I could have peace with God. As Simeon looked at Jesus Christ, he says, salvation has come through this one, the one God sent to save. Jesus' earthly ministry began with these words in Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In repentance and belief, you and I find peace with God. And so that's what we come to celebrate this morning through the table. We come to celebrate the fact that you and I, through Jesus, find peace with God.